the copyright expired song you're hearing is When You and I Were Young Maggie Blues by Jack Frost and Jimmy McHugh. Hey, I don't mean to give notes a hundred years after the fact, Jack and Jimmy, but how about you just call the song When You and I Were Young? Or you could call it Maggie Blues. But when you call it When You and I Were Young Maggie Blues, that sounds like you and I used to both be a person named Maggie. Sorry to note you to death. But let me move on, because I am not here to spit on the work of people who have been dead for half a century. Or at least I am not here to only do that. I am also here to dig up the bones of people who came before me and made my livelihood possible, ridicule them, and then bury them once more. Because the latest installment in my mocking people who had way more talent and success than I could ever even dream of series is Errol Flynn. I was talking about swashbuckler epics in my last episode because swashbuckler epics were the equivalent in the 30s, 40s, and 50s of today's superhero movies. They are all about characters with incredible powers beating back the forces of evil. Douglas Fairbanks started many of these movies in the 1920s, and Douglas Fairbanks was, I think it's fair to say, basically replaced by Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn started starring in these movies in the 1930s. 1938's The Adventures of Robin Hood was a big hit. And as I research these movie stars from days gone by, I always find it interesting to see how far into their Wikipedia page you get before it says something along the lines of, OPS, this person was sort of a monster. In Errol Flynn's case, it is the second sentence. I am not going to go into the details of why some people then, and basically all people now, if these stories are true, consider Errol Flynn a monster because I want this to remain a comedy podcast. And there are some things that are just too dark to get into and then try to do some turn where you go, okay, forget about that. Who's ready to giggle? Can't be done. Suffice it to say, these allegations are not things you would get behind. And of course, Errol Flynn has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It is located at 6654 Hollywood Boulevard, right between the gluten-free vape shop and the Hustler Madame Tussauds Museum of Topless Wax Celebrities. And it got me thinking, what would be cause to have one's star removed from the Hollywood Walk of Fame? And that's when I learned something really interesting, and that is nobody has ever had their star removed from the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I did not know that. Bill Cosby still has a star on the Walk of Fame. Michael Jackson still has a star on the Walk of Fame. I did learn from Google that apparently <laughs> Bill Cosby's star has been shit on uh, more than once. Although, if you're familiar with Hollywood Boulevard, there's just always shit on Hollywood Boulevard. If there was shit on Bill Cosby's star, maybe that was a political statement, or maybe it was uh, just a coincidence. Anyway, the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce, which runs the whole Walk of Fame thing, has just made a decision that they are not going to get into the business of removing stars, which I think is an interesting posture in this day and age when we are trying to decide how do we honor, revere, talk about, ignore people from the past who didn't share our oh-so-upright moral standards of today. 
they have said, we're just not doing it. Bill Cosby has a star. We're just not doing it. I actually think that is an, it's interesting and I can see their point because this is not the case of one statue in one town square or even, you know, a couple dozen statues in a capital rotunda or something like that. There are more than 2,500 stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and all of them went to people in entertainment. And, you know, I don't mean to talk ugly about my industry, but there are activities sometimes in this field. I mean, I went to a party one time uh, where one guy was smoking reefer. So, yeah, it gets crazy in this field. And 2,500 stars, I think slippery slope arguments are often very overused, but this really does seem like the slipperiest of slopes. If you start litigating, okay, how much bad behavior is too much bad behavior, you are just going to become a movie star of the past investigation unit. How many of those 2,500 people have some shit that we would really look bad if we started thinking about it. I don't know, 2,000? <laughs> a lot of them lived a long time ago. You think anyone from the 20s had good views on gay rights? I guarantee you, none of them did. It is difficult to find guiding principles in this area and to just say, we're just not going to do it, period, full stop. That is... Uh, a principle, and in this context, I, you know, I don't want to fully say I totally endorse that. What if Hitler had a star? But uh, in this context, I will say I get it. So lucky you, Errol Flynn. Your alleged activities are not going to be investigated by the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce nor by any legal entity because you have smartly passed away. Ah, you found a loophole. You got away with it. You will be known for your pirate movies and not your dark, 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 dark alleged shit. Hello, I'm Jeff Maurer, and this is the I Might Be Wrong podcast, the number one podcast in iTunes slandering dead people who cannot defend themselves category. Today's episode is called Fill-in-the-Blank Derangement Syndrome is Bad. I wanted to write this one because, look, I've followed politics my entire adult life. It's like the thing I'm interested in, politics, comedy, and soccer. That's me. Those are the only three things I know. But as I continue to follow politics, as I continue to write about politics, which I have done for a living for about a decade now, two decades if you count speech writing, it's becoming clear to me that politics frequently triggers the part of your brain that is very angry. And I think we should talk about that. I think we should all acknowledge that. Think about how these neurons are firing in our own brains in a way that might not always be so healthy. Because it's a thing that happens, and it seems like it might be a thing that is happening more frequently than it used to. So it seems worth talking about. The episode is called Fill in the Blank, Derangement Syndrome is Bad. Subheading, derangement generally ain't great. Trump derangement syndrome is real. I spent Trump's presidency writing for a late night show in New York. TDS ripped through my community like AIDS went through the bathhouse scene in the 1980s. I saw the best minds of my generation, destroyed by madness, obsessive, unfunny, self-serious, dragging themselves through the streets of Brooklyn at dawn, looking for a Trump tweet to stoke their outrage. And I was arguably one of them, except for the best minds part. I'm starting to think that wokeness derangement syndrome is maybe just as real, more than a few critics of wokeness or left to liberalism if you want to be insufferable, and I always do. More than a few of those critics have gone off the deep end. As with Trump, <laughs> the concerns they have are real. I want to be very clear. Concerns about Trump, concerns about out-of-control, lefty wokeness, those are real. Those are real and legitimate. But as with Trump, 
The concerns about wokeness run amok seem to make some people's brains unable to process any other information. I think that for every new example of lefty overreach that enters, for example, Jordan Peterson's brain, some cognitive function gets pushed out. I am worried that one day Jordan Peterson is going to be driving his car, news of some stupid AOC tweet will come over the radio, and Peterson will spontaneously forget how to drive. Come to think of it now, Obama derangement syndrome was a thing. We just didn't call it that. There was no name for it back then. And I do think that being incensed by Obama is a sure sign of madness. You should not be pushed over the edge by a man who was to radical politics what the monkeys were to death metal. It is one thing to disagree with Barack Obama's politics, that is of course fine, but it is another thing to view a guy who makes your average 80s sitcom dad look like Hunter S. Thompson as the first horseman of the apocalypse. Why is this so common? Why do so many politically involved people turn into Howard Beale from Network? I think it's because there's a link between politics and anger. In fact, to say there's a link between politics and anger is probably a massive understatement. Politics and anger seem to be connected by a big red bat phone. Although, that is not necessarily bad. I think anger is good sometimes. I think some of our most revered political figures have had a pretty major badger up their ass. But I do think we should acknowledge the connection between anger and political involvement so that we can think about how it does sometimes fry people's brains. So to get there, let's back all the way up. Why do we even have governments? To issue stamps and to declare a national bird, to be sure. But what else? Their main function is to save us from chaos. When we were living in societies where the strong preyed on the weak, we sought out strong men who would provide a security for fealty arrangement. And sure, the strong man would probably murder you and take your stuff. But that beats having bandits take your stuff and then murder you. That's what counted for choice back then. The ability to choose who would turn you into a corpse and then rummage through your pockets. But what's relevant here is that we formed governments because we were acting out of fear. Fear and, one assumes, anger. If someone clubbed me and stole my amorpha full of millet, I would be quite angry. Politics is about organizing society, and from the very beginning, fear and anger have spurred us to seek out better societies. The connection between fear, anger, and politics seems to be natural. It also, by the way, strikes me as somewhat healthy. Better to translate your angst into political action than to turn it into violence or, far worse, rap metal. And most things that we see as political advancement were the product of dissatisfaction. People did not like being ruled by foreigners, especially British foreigners. And now even the Brits recognize that a people should rule themselves. Women did not like being second-class citizens, and now they have triumphantly won some of what they deserve some places sometimes. After only 200 years, African Americans convinced white people that all men are created equal means that all men are created, you know, equal. Anger can be good. Dissatisfaction can spur change. I am not Pollyanna. I am not arguing, for example, that Ukrainians should play the glad game instead of being a little ticked about their country being invaded. So anger 
has its place, I think. But anger's usefulness is limited. All of the examples that I just gave involved a group fighting for equal rights. Historically, that is the shape that many political fights have taken. It stems from our unfortunate habit of dividing humanity into faction, a practice that somehow persisted beyond the 1961 publication of Dr. Seuss's The Sneetches and Other Stories. Nice try, Dr. Seuss. Didn't quite get us there. The fix to this problem, of course, is extremely simple. Society's rules should apply equally to everyone. No special knowledge is needed to get behind that idea. Nobody in the movement needs to know a damn thing about economics or sociology or the Dewey Decimal System or anything. When a group is fighting to be treated like everybody else, a sense of injustice plus maybe the occasional pitchfork is pretty much all that's needed. But modern challenges often require a different skill set. For example, the big topic in American politics right now is inflation. Inflation cannot be solved with a pitchfork and a pithy slogan. Another example, I believe that the free movement of people and money makes things better for most people most times. But explaining why I believe that requires a whiteboard, an Econ 101 textbook, and a hollowed-out tooth with a cyanide capsule in it so that my subject can bite down when they can't stand my lecture anymore. A third example, zoning. That's important, but it is also as exciting as a can of wax beans. Fantastically, on the written version of this column, one of my readers chimed in with a wax bean casserole recipe in the comments section. What is this blog for if not ways to make beans more exciting? So I encourage you to go to my blog, I might be wrong.substack.com, and check that bean recipe out. Climate change, another example of a boring topic. It is abstract, it is complex. That complexity, by the way, is one of 50 reasons why Don't Look Up didn't work for me, because the metaphor in that movie was not complex at all. Many modern issues are complex. Many issues these days require deep knowledge and careful analysis. Unfortunately, anger is a lot like cocaine. It gets people moving, but when sober-minded reasoning is needed, it is unhelpful to say the least. And yet, we live in an age in which stoking anger is big business. Fox News figured out the alchemy behind turning rage into dollars in the late 90s. With the advent of social media, the left has finally built a similar machine. Many nonprofit organizations exist in a state of self-perpetuating forever war. Most legacy media outlets have switched to subscriber-based models built on engagement and engagement is the product of rage as surely as Country Time Lemonade is the product of nuclear waste and sand. I work in political media, which is why I am trying to state as loudly and as clearly as I can that the obvious incentive in this space is to stoke people's anger. That is not the only way to succeed, and a thousand compliments to the few people who have found other way to do things but anger is as essential to political media as lard is to southern cooking. Political parties also know that stoking fear of the other party is the best way to get people to vote. Most campaign ads these days are, of course, just 
character assassination set to whatever music pops up when you type Spooky Doom Badman into a free music database. The number of Americans who believe that the other party is a threat, that has skyrocketed. Polling tells us that. The overturning of Roe v. Wade, which was a disaster for the left, has been a fundraising and political boon for Democrats, which suggests that bad news is a better motivator than good news. Honestly, I see no off-ramp to this endless inflating of stakes. There will probably never be another election that people don't call the most important election of our lifetime, as if we haven't heard that every four years for the past two decades. In this environment, it is kind of amazing that we don't all lose our minds. I probably shouldn't be surprised that some people let fear of one big terrible thing dominate their consciousness. I should be amazed that anyone manages to keep their cool in this hothouse. It might also be true that the most useful thing I can do is not to support any particular candidate or policy, but just to upvote the idea that we should try to see problems with clear eyes and resist the impulse to inflate threats to several times their actual size. We also need to retain the ability to think about more than one thing at a time. Even the biggest problem in the world is not the only problem in the world. Obsessive focus can lead to blind spots. I do wonder, why am I only noticing this now? (laughs) I have been politically conscious for a quarter century, if you count what I was in college as politically conscious, which I was almost sentient back then. But anyway, how did I miss the connection between politics and anger for all those years? How did I listen to so much rage against the machine in the 90s and not think, hmm, these fellows seem to have quite the bee in their bonnet. I think the first reason is that I have been doing a lot of scripted writing lately. Scripted writing involves a ton of reverse engineering. You spend a lot of time trying to figure out why something worked so that you can rip that thing off. Phrased another way, recreate the experience. Let's go with recreate the experience instead of ripped that thing off even though potato, potato, you know? Anyway, applying that reverse engineering process to political media, that has made it screamingly obvious to me that nine times out of 10, anger is the itch that's being scratched. The second reason I think I'm noticing this now is that I am now old enough to recognize this pattern in my own life. When I am feeling angry, when I am feeling wronged, I often seek out content that validates my feelings. It is honestly... It's pretty damn pathetic. I will have opinion X. So then I take to the internet to find people who also have opinion X. And that incredibly, even though I sought it out, makes me think, ha, I was right. It's the same thing I do when I don't like a movie. I will call up that movie on Metacritic. I will scroll past all the positive reviews read the negative reviews, and then think, ha, see, it sucks. I honestly don't think that that habit is 100% unhealthy. I might agree with 98% unhealthy, but maybe not 100% unhealthy, because sometimes I am right to feel aggrieved. And finding people 
who share that feeling can validate opinions that are, you know, valid. I have tried to be clear in this episode that I do think anger can be a useful emotion. Sometimes it needs to be allowed in society, and I also allow it in myself. But, and this article, much like Baby Got Back by Sir Mix-a-Lot, is mostly about that but. But I should avoid getting sucked into an anger vortex. After all, part of being an adult is learning how to take it hard in the ass. My grandma used to tell me that all the time, just using slightly more polite words. But you gotta learn how to take it in the ass. So when I perceive an injustice, even if that injustice is real, past a certain point, I just need to think injustice noted and then move on. If I am treating problems as bigger than they are and losing sight of other things, then I am obsessing and I am making myself useless. Self-awareness will help me here. I need to know that content that appeals to my sense of anger is going to punch above its weight. That is especially true if the issue relates to some experience I have had. The more personal the issue, the stronger my opinion is likely to be. I think there's also a lesson here For those of us who craft political messages for a living, a small but personal injustice can do a lot to shape a person's worldview. I think of this every time I see a poorly thought out mask requirement these days. I think those mask requirements, uh, they don't really stop COVID these days so much as they create Republicans. And I'd like to see them stop. But I do actually have something positive to say here, which is usually not the case. But I do happen to believe that sanity is trending in the right direction at the moment. I think we hit a real low point in 2020, which will probably be the craziest year of most of our lives. Really, whether wokeness or Trump or both is the thing that tends to fray your wires. 2020 provided enough voltage to test the capacity of your system. And in that year... A lot of people short-circuited. And the good news, I think, is that crazy wokeness does seem to be down from its apex. And we are now getting positive, boring things like a bill to boost semiconductor production. It is not great that all of our production is in Taiwan. Some of it should be here. And Trump, Trump is, you know, he's not president. There's that. He's not president. So let's take solace in that. I am going to try to use this period of relative calm to double-check the integrity of my wiring to protect against future surges. Because politics will always have plenty of rage-fueled maniacs, the world will not be better off if I am one of them. And that's the episode. The comments section on the written version of this article, which of course can be found at imightbewrong.substack.com, is interesting because it is basically... 80% people writing very thoughtfully about this connection between politics and anger and how it has manifested itself recently and what we might do about it. And then it is 20% people kind of proving the point of the article that this is a problem. That is my take on the comments. I don't know. Check them out. See what you think. I am also, you may have realized, kind of trying to explain past and future content that you will 
see on I Might Be Wrong because I, you know, am going to be kind of angry about stuff sometimes and trigger that part of your brain that is also angry about that thing. And I've tried to be clear in this episode that that's part of it. (laughs) That's part of it in politics. You have to do that sometimes. But I am going to try not to do that more than I have to. I'm going to try not to do the thing where anger and outrage becomes my brand. That is just not what I want to do. Although, I don't know if it's lucrative, maybe. Anyway, that's the episode. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please do give it a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, or you can give it a five-corncob review on Farmers Only or wherever you get your podcasts. I will be back next week with another thorough hazing of a dead person, followed by political comedy. Until then... Thank you very much for listening, and bye for now.